Well, hello, family. Jesus loves you. So we set the table uh, a couple of weeks ago. We set the table for a new series uh, that we're that we're in right now called the Jesus Way of Human Flourishing. And uh, then I kind of left everyone hanging <laughs> last week. Did all that work to set the table. Um, and I know he's not here, but I just want to thank again, Cal, for stepping in and preaching the word last week. Um, he's so great. If you guys would, just grab your Bibles, open them up to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Okay, this is the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. In fact, a lot of people think this is the sermon he went around preaching all over the place. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. And he began to teach him. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, please. Oh, Lord God, we love you. Thank you that we get to come to worship you and hear from you. Lord, we remember that there are many that are sick right now, and I ask that you would bring your great resurrection healing to each person that is sick right now in our congregation. Uh, Lord, we remember specifically Jane, who's recovering from her stroke. I just pray that you would heal her brain, that you give her uh, endurance and encouragement. Uh, Lord God, we thank you uh, that you are with us. You're with us even now. Would you help us open up our eyes and open up our ears and sense you today that your presence is with us because you're what we need. Lord Jesus, as we turn to your text, Lord, help us be people that are humble, people that live life and show up in life humbly, even as you did. And it's in your sacred name we ask it. Amen. So just to refresh our memory from a couple of weeks ago, the, the question that uh, <clears throat> you and I are always asking, are always trying to answer is this. There's two big questions that, that we as humans are always trying to answer. What is the good life and how do I get it? What is the good life and how, like, how do I walk towards actually encountering and experiencing that? Like every decision that you and I make in a given week. Think back over your week. Listen, every, every, every decision that you and I made this past week is based on our picture or our vision of what we think will make us the happiest, the longest, and how to best get there. These are important questions. So today we're going to look at the first block of what was, was often called the Beatitudes today, okay? And so there's a block of like, they're in threes. And we're going to look at the first block, the first three. If you, it, this helps maybe think about the Beatitudes as like a little preface right before a book you're about ready to read, okay? And so this is kind of like setting up the bullet points. These, are, these Beatitudes are these memorable, pithy, one-sentence summaries about what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. 
And the rest of Christ's sermon is going to flesh out each one of these beatitudes. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is so long. He's going to give some detail in real life of what each of these looks like as he goes along. And so one quick reminder before we dive in. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and i got to mention again, it's really key to understand the Sermon on the Mount. The word that we translate into the English as blessed, remember that word that when, when Tom read that, blessed are, blessed are? The word that we that we've translated in English in the Greek is the word makarios. Okay, remember that? Makarios actually means flourishing. It doesn't mean God's favor or like God's blessing on your life. It means flourishing. Or you could say happy. And so these beatitudes or makarisms, they're proclamations that invite the listeners into a way of being in the world that will result in flourishing, human flourishing. And he's saying, come in, I'm inviting you to live this way, not that way, because it's good for you. It will make you happy. Isn't that the question you're asking every day? Jesus says, I'm going to answer that question. All right, But in each of these Makarisms, each of these Beatitude sayings, Jesus is going to authoritatively redefine what human flourishing is, and then he's going to give a reason for it. So that's the first half is, here's what flourishing really is, and then the second half of the Beatitude is, and here's the reason why. And so I'm going to read it that way, okay? This is the big idea for today. Jesus' invitation to everyone who will listen is come experience the life of flourishing by living humbly, as I define it. Come, experience the life of flourishing by living humbly, as I define humble. And so we're going to look at how Jesus defines living humbly. First of all, it's those that embrace their lowly status, they're the flourishing people. Those that embrace their low status are actually flourishing people, according to Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 3. Blessed, or we could say flourishing, are the poor in spirit for this reason. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let me read it again. Flourishing are the poor in spirit for this reason. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus first addresses our human tendency to see status as the pathway to experiencing a happy, uh, you know, satisfying life. That, 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 and this is the philosophy that the entire world, world promotes. Cross cultures, cross language, cross everything. This is the philosophy. Look, if you want the good life, if you want a lasting, satisfying, uh, lasting satisfaction, then you must strive for Upward mobility. It's the gospel of upward mobility. Up, 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 to the right, to the right. That's how your life should go. Your next job has to be better than the last job you left. It can't be worse. That's not flourishing. It's got to be better, upward mobility, right? Your last title needs to be, your, your, your next title has to be better than your last title. Your next rank ought to be higher than the last rank. 
You shouldn't step down. You don't want a demotion. It should always be promotion, upward mobility, right? Climb the ladder of success, and you will have a good, happy, flourishing uh, life. In other words, flourishing comes to those that are middle class in spirit. That's what being middle class is, right? It's get the education, get the job, get the wife, get the house, get the dog, get the kids, right? And you keep, it's upward, upward, upward. And that's the, and you win when you get to the top and die. (laughs) You had a good life. You had a good life. Jesus says, actually, those that are poor in spirit are the ones that are flourishing despite all appearances. Do you feel yet how radical this guy Jesus is? Who is this guy? Who is this man? See, poor in spirit doesn't mean uh, to be people that think badly about themselves. Poor in spirit is not self-abasement, okay? Like, you know, oh Lord, I'm nothing but a worthless sinner. I'm nothing but a worm. I have no value. That's not poor. That's not what that phrase means. Poor in spirit, listen now, poor in spirit means you see yourself, it's how you view yourself, you see yourself as dependent on someone else for life. Let me say that again. Poor in spirit means you see yourself as dependent on someone else for life. That's why you're poor in spirit, not rich in spirit. Like you do not consider yourself self-sufficient to get through life all on your own. That's poor in spirit. Yes, we have values. Yes, we have skills. Yes, there's, we have talents and some resources. But we do not think that these things are sufficient to keep us from ramming our life into a tree or having a tree ram itself into our life. And we'll just bounce back. In other words, poor in spirit means we are not our own God. We need help constantly because we are poor in and of ourselves. There's a sense of my poverty. And I'm aware of that. I'm embracing that low status. For all of our talents, for all of our skills, for all of our abilities, we need food stamps to live. That's what it means. We need to stand in God's breadline every day. I'm not middle class in spirit. I'm poor in spirit. God, will you help me? I need the free lunch at school. Because I don't have a lunch. And if I don't get it from you, I don't eat today, God. That's being poor in spirit. Jesus says those that live like this, those who show up in life like this, as if they are utterly dependent on God their Father, they are are flourishing in life. 
They're winning in life. They are experiencing the most satisfying life as opposed to those that live like it all depends on them and their degrees and their parents and everything else that they've done for themselves. Do it yourself. DIY culture. And what's his reasoning? What's his reason for saying, for this radically controversial statement, like this is the flourishing life? Here it is. It's the second half of the beatitude. Because they know they are possessors of God's kingdom. They know what they possess. They may not possess this, but they possess that, God's kingdom. They are the inheritors and the rightful possessors of God's kingdom and all that comes from that. They are happy to be under the rule and reign of Jesus because Jesus, get this, is pleased to give all that belongs to him to his people who are under his care. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, right? Know what Jesus teaches later in Matthew? And that's why fear not. Look at Micah 7.18. The prophet says this, Who is a God like you who pardons sins? and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance, you do not stay angry forever, but get this, but delight to show mercy. He says, you're, he didn't say, you're a God who shows mercy. What's it say? You're a God who delights to show mercy. That's different. Okay, do you know what that means? Listen, it means that God literally enjoys be merciful. Like he smiles while he's merciful to you and me. Isn't that great? He gets a kick out of it. God literally gets joy from helping those that cannot help themselves. You know that old Americanism saying, the Lord helps those that help themselves, right? Not in the Bible. By the way, I've looked. The Lord loves to help those that cannot possibly help themselves. He's the happiest to do that. Like God enjoys saving the weak, rescuing the troubled, supplying the under-resourced, giving wisdom to the fools and the simple-minded. Listen, why would I want to be strong? Why would I want to rely on my resources? in my wisdom, in my limited power, when I could admit that I'm dependent on God for life and receive bountifully from his unlimited stockpile of resources. Like there's, no, like there's not even a back wall to his stock room. You understand what I'm saying? Why would I not want to be poor in spirit? Why would I not want to think of myself in this regard? That is flourishing. Do you see it? That is lasting satisfaction despite all appearances. That is winning and not losing. Like, do you guys ever miss being a kid? Like, even for a brief moment, ever? A couple of you do? I do. I'll share one of my favorite memories when I was a little boy. When we were younger, we take this long journey to my grandparents' house in Texas for Christmas every year, once a year. Pack everything up in the van. My dad would work a full day, and then he'd get in the car and drive, you know, to Texas. My dad always drove. And in a paradoxical kind of way, I did not worry about my life because my life 
was dependent on my dad. That probably should have made me nervous, but it didn't. It had the complete opposite effect on me that I was dependent on my dad, not free from his rule, not free from his choices, his decisions, his direction. How are we going to get there? Uh, I don't know. Dad will drive. Imagine a little kid. How are you going to get there? I don't know. Dad's going to drive. Well, well what, what if we get hungry? It's a long drive. What if we get hungry on the way? Dad will get his food. Uh, well, what if we need more gas for the van? Dad has money. And he knows where all the gas stations are to stop, even in the dark. Well, the road's really long. What if we get tired on the way? We can fall asleep in the back of the van because dad's going to stay awake all night so we can sleep. Say, aren't you worried? Aren't you worried, little boy? Getting your little self across the country? At night, since you're so weak and you're so powerful and you're clearly under-resourced, nope. I'm flourishing, actually. I'm flourishing. It's a good life. Is this not what Jesus did himself with his own life? Yeah. Jesus, almighty, powerful Jesus, chose to become weak and a frail human just like us. And he lived his life utterly dependent on God, his father, every day of his life till the day he was murdered and rose from the dead, right? He didn't rely on himself. It's not like he was in his human nature. Then he got in a jam and he went like, okay, God mode. You know, like that's not what he did. That's not what he did. It says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he lived as a man in utter dependence on his father. That's why you can live dependent on your heavenly father. He's shown us the way and he's making the way for us, right? Instead of flaunting his high status as God of the universe, Colossians says that it was Jesus that created the universe. So does Hebrews. And he's walking in the creation that he actually made and is even sustaining and somehow that I don't understand. And so instead of like flaunting his high status as God, he chose to humble himself by choosing to go through life as a son of God. I've got a dad. And I'm going to trust dad. He submitted his life to the will of the Father, and he depended on his wisdom, his insight, his power, and his resources. And if he didn't need to know it, then Jesus didn't know it. He was going to trust his Father and everything in his life, everything that he needed while he lived on earth. How lowly. How lowly. How, how poverished, you know? How poor. Poor in spirit. In fact, that's what Jesus did for 40 days in the wilderness right before he preached this sermon of good news to everyone. Remember that? Go look it up. It's in Matthew 4. It's exactly what he walked out and did with his life. 
He fought the temptation of wanting earthly status as the way to the good life. If you're the son of God, what did the devil say, right? Then turn this. What's he doing? He's questioning his very identity. Right? Jesus chose instead to rest his life in the will of God, who ends up sending angels to minister to him later on. How hard would you think that would be for him to be ministered by very things that he created? and go, I'll accept that because I need it. How, how, like, how poor? It's important for you and I to see, friends, that Jesus is telling us to live in a way that he himself has lived before us. He has tasted it. He has sampled it. He has encountered it. He's not inviting you and I into something that he himself did not personally experience. He's not like a sage up on a mountain, like doling out wisdom. He's saying, this is a way to be in the world, and I have done it. So come with me. Enter into this. We can do this. Right? We are, listen, we are participating with him in this life when we live this way. You understand what I'm saying? when we depend on the Father for all of our needs. Poor in spirit looks like losing. Poor in spirit looks shameful in a middle-class-in-spirit kind of world, doesn't it? But Jesus proves to us, his very life proves to us, now nah, this is the way of flourishing. And anybody can get in on this. Second, part of this, this what does this mean to live in humility? Well, it means that those, those that are saddened they're the flourishing people. Those that are saddened are flourishing people. Verse 4, he says, Flourishing are those who mourn. For this reason, they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. Jesus puts two things right next together that just don't go together in our picture of the good life, right? Human flourishing and grieving. We don't have a category for that, amen? I mean, I don't. And Jesus puts them like right next to each other. And it makes, it's supposed to be, you can say like, come again, Jesus, what? See, there's a tendency for, for us, at least for me, that I want to round off the really sharp edges of Jesus' teachings to make it a little more palatable for my life, make it a little easier for me to understand. Surely Jesus doesn't want me to be sad. I mean, didn't I just say at the beginning this, like the message, like this is all about like we want to know what the happy life is and how to get it? Surely Jesus doesn't want me to be sad. Be sad. This macarism, it sounds like really zen, doesn't it? Like the happy people are the ones that are crying. <laughs> what? How can Jesus say sad people are the most happy, fullest, fullest alive people? Like isn't being happy all about eliminating everything in my life that makes me mourn, eliminate everything that makes me grieve? I mean, I thought if I followed Jesus that my life will get happier and sweeter than the day before. You know, I thought I'd be leaping from mountaintop experience to mountaintop experience when I started living the Jesus way in the world. 
So what, what's going on here? Like, what is Jesus saying about his way of living in light of the kingdom that is coming, the kingdom that he's bringing? Now, that's a key interpretive part right there. Jesus is telling us that we presently live in a society that celebrates things that should sadden us. And we mourn things that we should celebrate. And that's why his kingdom seems like such an upside-down kingdom. We don't even know what we should celebrate, and we don't even know what we should cry, grieve, and mourn over with, like, literal hot tears. The greatest thing, brothers and sisters, that could ever happen to this broken world is for people to have their eyes open to just how far we have parted from God's goodness and God's beauty and God's truth. And that we're fine with it. The greatest thing that happen is we, our eyes could be open to that and we grieve. We shed literal tears. That's the best thing that could happen, Jesus says. Not to be angry over it, We've had two years of everyone getting real practice of being really angry. And I have pleaded for two years with people, stop being angry, start crying. It's not the anger that are comforted, just saying. Right? You don't get comfort if you're angry and raging. You do if you're crying. So not to be curious, not to be despondent, not to be angry about it, but to literally weep and mourn over how much we have accepted evil as okay, accepted the faults, and accepted the ugly. And that's just the way life is. And if you want to function, that's just the way you got to be. You fight ugly with ugly, and you fight evil with evil, and you you fight fake with fake. Here's what makes a true disciple of Jesus sad with a truly deep sadness. You ready? When they see how little of Christ's rule actually operates in their own day-to-day life. Like when, when they get a glimpse of how little the effect of the wonderful, gracious Son of God has had on their decisions, their politics, their personal finance, their obedience to the law of love, their interpersonal relationships, and instead they've been building their whole kingdom the whole time. And they get a glimpse of that, and they go, oh my gosh, I'm sad about that. A true disciple of Jesus literally gets sad about that stuff instead of like pawning that off on some other reason or ignoring that or not feeling that at all. It's trying to like function anyway. Like when we are saddened by how little the kingdom of God has actually taken root in our life by this time in our life, listen, that's a sign that you're flourishing, Jesus says. That's a sign you're winning. That's a sign you're living. Abundant life, eternal life. It's a sign that we have truly have, like we think we have, that we've really oriented our life towards the true North Star of lasting satisfaction. And why? Why is that the sign? Jesus tells us it's the second part of that beatitude, that Makarism. Because if that is what we weep and grieve and mourn, mourn like when you've had a loss in your life, 
And you let yourself feel loss. You let yourself feel loss. You will be comforted by God himself. Did you hear what I said? Not a substitute, not a representative. God himself will comfort you. See, when our deepest ache and our deepest longing is for more and more of our society to come under the beautiful, loving, life-giving rule of Jesus, and we're saddened because it isn't right now, we're actually flourishing. We're living the good life. Why? Because we're longing for a future that is definitely coming. We're wanting something that's real, and it is coming. And we say, hurry, Jesus. Hurry up with that. I've tasted of it, and I'm tired of a taste. I want the full meal deal, and I want everyone to experience it. Right? But like, like we're experiencing, when that happens, listen, it's the best way I know how to describe it, and I know it's an oxymoron, but I don't know another way to say it. What, we're, what is happening to you right now when you experience that grieving with hope is that you're experiencing nostalgia for the future. What's nostalgia? A longing for what was. In some weird way, we're like nostalgic about something that we've never fully really tasted because his kingdom is going inside of us. Only Jesus could come up with stuff like this. This is why he is in a class all by himself different. Listen, what better comfort could you have than God himself be your comforter? He's great. He's even better than your mom. I mean, your mom may be a great comforter, but he's even better because he made you. All right? She begat you, but he made you. Anyway, one day, you and I will no longer, listen, we're no longer going to have to experience how disintegrated we are and disintegrated other people are. I mean, if I've seen anything, like we have no idea how to have relationships, even good relationships. We don't even know how to do that. And there's a day coming when that will be over and we won't have to encounter people that are just disintegrated and cry over that. One day you and I will no longer have to see the ugliness that resides, yes, in our own hearts and weep over it. One day we will be wholehearted people instead of split-hearted people where our outer world and our inner world isn't lining up all the way. One day that will be over. That's what you want, right? I I hope I'm just articulating what I I know you already want and feel in your bones. And that day is coming. God himself will wipe away every tear from our eye. Mourning the right things, brothers and sisters, is a present sign that you actually are living the good life now. Because you won't long and you won't ache and you won't weep for those good, righteous things, those lasting things forever. That future nostalgia is going to be the present one day. And we're going to get to physically experience all of that. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus spent much of his time on earth grieving. Did you know that? What's Isaiah said? Yeah, man of what? Sorrows. And what? Acquainted with grief. Grief, can I make your acquaintance? That's Jesus. They're on a first name basis. 
like 33 plus years that he was on the earth. He walked around grieving and like in funeral mode a lot of his days. And yet he was definitely flourishing. You see, Jesus is the embodiment of all this stuff he's teaching. He mourned over the hard-heartedness of people in Jerusalem who refused to come to him for life. He's saying, this is the way. And they go, I don't want that way. I'm going to live this way. And he cried about it. It bothered him. But later in Matthew, in Matthew 23, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Do Do you hear the mourning? The city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it. How often not how infrequent, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. What's he doing? He's given a eulogy before the funeral comes in two more chapters. Jesus mourned the death of Lazarus, his best friend Lazarus in John 11. You remember that? Even when he knew he was going to raise him to life in a few more minutes. It says Jesus wept. That's a visceral bodily kind of crying. You understand what I'm saying? He wept. Now why? Why did Jesus choose to step into that thing we call grief? when he knew he was going to raise him to life again. Because grief is work. It's a space that we don't like to enter and we don't want to hang out there very often. But there's beautiful things happen when we allow ourselves to feel grief of things that we really actually have lost. So why does he step into that when he knows he's going to raise him to life again? Because Jesus hates death existing in the world even for five minutes. He didn't like it. He's mad about it. He wants it gone. It bothers him. Jesus mourned and cried to the Father on the cross as he experienced the crushing magnitude and the filth of all of our sins that covered him. He had never felt that before until the cross, and then he felt all of it. He felt dirty and vile, and that was yours and mine. And he cried to his Father. He was grieving and mourning and crying. He went up there like, you know, tough guy. Stoic. But it was his, it was through his tears that we can experience real comfort from our sins. Because he cried on the cross, Jesus can forgive your sins. And he can wipe that guilty guilty feeling, that shameful feeling away. Praise be to God. Isn't that great? And you can, you know what? His tears brings you flourishing. Brothers and sisters, please do not become desensitized to the sadness that we ought to feel over the brokenness of this world, okay? Don't, that's a coping mechanism, and I'm begging you not to go that way. Because when you do, you're cutting off your own humanity. You have to be less human to do that. And that is not flourishing. Do not let yourself become desensitized to the brokenness that's inside your own heart either, brothers and sisters. Be sensitive to that. And let yourself feel that and bring that to Jesus. Take it to Jesus. 
Don't numb out or cut off that part of being human, the experiencing of grief and loss. Jesus didn't. Happiest guy that ever lived. He didn't. Let the tears of Jesus teach you what you ought to shed tears over. And I invite you, trade your anger for sadness. Take that home with you today. I invite you to trade your anger, whatever you're angry about, and trade it for sadness. That's what a lot of that is. You're not letting yourself cry. And that's why you can't get over the anger. Trade your rage for some tears and see how they cleanse. Those that mourn will be. You can be angry the rest of your life. Jesus, you're not going to be sad the rest of your life. So be sad because it's not permanent. Isn't that good news? Hey, isn't that good news? Come on, guys. That's great news. Where do you see yourself holding on to broken patterns of thinking, broken patterns of living? What areas of your life have you not allowed Jesus to tread into or touch? Can you name that? Jesus is inviting you to mourn over whatever that is so that you can and that you will experience his wonderful, lasting comfort. This is the way of being humble. It takes a humble person to mourn, doesn't it? Thirdly, and finally, those that live meekly, they're flourishing people. Those that live meekly are flourishing people. Look at verse 5. Flourishing are the meek for this reason. They shall inherit whole earth. Whoa. We just kind of read right over that. We're going to park on that for just a couple of minutes. This is, this is good news, guys. Up until very recently, okay, probably up into the last four to five years or so, like that recently, the, the notion of humility and meekness being a virtue was not that controversial in American society. Why? Because how deeply our society had been shaped by Christian virtues. Literally, up to about four, five, six years ago, this, this would not be that controversial. Be humble. Live meekly. Oh, sure, of course I'm supposed to. Of course I'm supposed to. Of course being humble is a virtue, and I should cultivate that. Of course living meekly is better than living by being a bully. I mean, no one talks about that now. Of course this is the way of winning at life. But this, guys, was a revolutionary teaching in a Greco-Roman society. You do a little bit of like history of civilization over the last few thousand years and all the empires that have risen and fallen. This was revolutionary teaching. Nobody taught this till Jesus showed up. And it just it gets lost on us on how radical this way of living is. Nobody, and I mean nobody, 
thought of humility in general and meekness in particular as a virtue that people ought to cultivate and celebrate and get better at. Nobody taught that. You're a chump if you thought that way. I think that's the Greek word they use, chump. I mean, no, no you guys don't understand. Like, it's the, hum the humble get enslaved by the loud and the proud. What's this guy talking about? Because that history's shown us that. The meat get crushed under the boot heel of the stronger one. Survival of the fittest, right? That's Darwinism. Survival of the, you know, fittest in species. Weak ones die off, strong ones live, they propagate. That's the way of the world. Might makes right in society, right? The received wisdom for thousands and thousands and thousands of years is this. We need to get them before they get us. It was like a perverted golden rule, right? Do unto others before they do unto me, right? That's how all of life and societies operated. Now, to be sure, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. Those are different things. Meekness is a way of being where one has a measure of power. They have a measure of power but they choose to use that power in a highly restrained way. That's meekness. A meek person has some authority, but does not use it to the fullest extent of the law. They restrain it. They have a measure of power, but they refuse to use it to its full capacity. In other words, the meek are restrained. Listen, listen even when their restraint will not get them their desired results. Because that is actually when meekness matters the most, right? You don't got to be meek when you know that whatever you do is going to get what you want, right? <laughs> right? Being meek matters when you know if I am meek, I won't get what I want. That's the, that's the very definition of being meek. I'm not going to push and control and contort Right? And coerce. And by the way, is this not a perfect description of the entire life of Jesus Christ? Remember, don't pull this off and say, well, of course Jesus could do because he was God, the God-man. No, he chose to live a life dependent on his Father as a man. He's showing us the way to live as a human. I mean, this is exactly what he did. He, he, his whole life was that the deliberate restraint of all authority and all of power, even when facing difficulties and even facing personal harm and loss. What did he say to Peter when Peter pulled out his sidearm and cut the guy's ear off? Don't you know about my father in heaven? I could send down a legion of angels if I wanted and just take care of this. Meekness, even against his enemies. And then he healed it. And they still arrested him. Meekness. Meekness. Power restrained. Authority restrained. Even when it doesn't go well for you. Especially when it doesn't go well for you. Jesus stood up on this mountain, taking the place of the great mighty prophet Moses, and authority declares to all the people gathered who are currently living under the boot heel of Rome, 
currently living under the merciless boot heel of might makes right, see, example A, us, this is flourishing and you're not. And he says this phrase, those that live meekly are flourishing. And here's his reason to prove that it's true. He said, here's why. The meek will inherit the whole earth. The meek will inherit the whole earth. I like how New Testament scholar David Turner explains this part. Dr. Turner says, quote, God's inaugurated reign will eventually result in humble disciples not arrogant tyrants inheriting the earth. Once again, Jesus goes against the grain of human culture and experience by asserting that the meek, not those well-stocked with wealth, armament, or status, will inherit the earth, close quote. Is this amazing, guys, to you? When you know that you will get everything in the world as a gift from Jesus, that affects how you engage in this world, right? It affects how you engage with debates or conflicts or any kind of a power struggle or difficult relationship. It's gonna, if that's your future, that's your guaranteed future, then that's gonna spill over and affect how you live in the present, amen? Uh, you, you will engage those things. You will engage those situations. You will step into them. There's nowhere I can think of in the, in the Gospels where Jesus did not step into conflict or did not step into grief. He stepped into each one of those every time. But the way he stepped into it is just so informative. And so we will engage with those things, but you and I, we will enter those spaces of conflict or power struggles or debate with a sense of victory. We'll enter those spaces with a sense of hope and calmness. Calm presence instead of anxiety or rage, which rage is actually kind of a cover for anxiety. You wouldn't be so mad if you weren't afraid something was going to be taken from you. If this means, what Jesus is teaching is that this means we will engage our opponents with certain tactics and we will reject other tactics that the world is very happy to deploy because this is all there is. This is all we get. And we might lose it. We might lose it. It means that when we do adopt certain tactics to step in those kinds of spaces, then we're going to deploy them with restraint, unlike the world. And why? Because we have it on very good authority that nothing can be taken from us now that will not be restored to us in the kingdom of God isn't that good news? Nothing. You don't lose anything when you're in Christ. You don't. Engaging our opponents with meekness instead of domination is a sign to our opponents that we, not them, stand in a secure place. Did you hear what I said? We do this as a signpost. I'll say that again. Engaging our opponents with meekness instead of 
domination is actually a sign to our opponents that we, not them, send into a secure place. They think they're standing in this powerful, secure place, and we're not. And we're saying, now we're actually really in a secure place. Our feet are on a rock. So go for it. Take it. Do what you will. Do your worst. In calm presence. You're the one who's anxious. Why? Because I know I'm going to inherit the earth. We are held by a grip that, that not even they can loosen. What does Jesus say? My father will not lose one. Let them be snatched out of my hand, right? That's a tight grip. We have an inheritance not even they can rob us of. Sure, they can take it. Sure, they can take it momentarily, but they cannot be ultimate possessors of it. The arrogant, the power-hungry, and the anxiety harvesters are not the true inheritors of the world. So says Jesus. Despite all appearances, the meek are. A person who thinks like this really is flourishing. They're living a full abundant life, are they not? They really are experiencing inner peace, lasting peace. They really are experiencing security. Jesus is inviting you and I to live meekly among others just like he did with this little bit of revelation. Here it is. We will inherit it all one day. Guys, Jesus walked the earth like he knew a big secret that nobody else did. You ever get that impression when you read Jesus' life? Well, this is the secret right here that he knew. This is it. He tells the secret. He wasn't going to lose anything that a little resurrection couldn't fix. (laughs) So he's able to treat us with meekness. He's able to engage us, even when we're his enemies, with restraint and kindness and gentleness and all the fruits of the the Spirit, right? Jesus says, guys, this is the way. Jesus is like the first Mandalorian. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is the way. The evidence that you are truly flourishing is that you walk humbly in a world, in the world, because you know, that's mine, and that's mine. I'm going to get that. That's all just on loan right now from God. And we'll possess it in his kingdom with him being our king. Isn't that great? We're going to inherit it all one day. So peace, peace be upon you. Live like that. Live that way. May those who have ears to hear, hear what Jesus says on his mountain. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, lowly Lord. You came down so low. You came down in so much just humiliation, walking like us, living like us, experiencing life like us, that we might have abundant life. And Lord, we, you, you invite us to live within humility, not proud, not arrogant, not boastful, not braggadocious, but to live in humility. And you say, these are the flourishing ones. This is the good life. Come into it, come into it, come into it. And so I pray you take these words 
just press them deep into our heart like seeds in soil. And let it grow. Let it grow life. In your sacred name we pray. Amen.